0: Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of TheMindsRenewed.com, podcasting to you, as usual, from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. Today is the 9th of July 2014, and I'm very pleased to be welcoming to the programme Max Andrews, who is a Christian philosopher currently pursuing a PhD in philosophy at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. His research centres in the ontology of the many worlds interpretation of quantum physics and in the problems associated with cosmological fine-tuning. He's already published in several journals, written a couple of books, one of which is an introduction to the very subject that we're gonna be talking about today. And he's presented at high-profile conferences such as the Evangelical Philosophical Society and Tyndale House in Cambridge. And he's lectured at Liberty University in the US on a wide range of philosophical subjects, which I'm I'm gonna have a go now at rattling through just to see how quickly I can do a kind of um, philosophical tongue twister. He has taught on, you ready for this? Logic, existentialism, metaphysics, epistemology, philosophy of science, theological liberalism, neo-orthodoxy, personhood, free will and determinism, theological fatalism, axiology, the moral argument for the existence of God, various cosmological arguments for the existence of God, the fine-tuning argument for the existence of God, and the problem of evil. Max, thank you very much for joining us on The Mind Renewed.
1: (laughs) Thank you, Julian. It's it's a pleasure. It's great
0: to have you on. Thanks. Now we're going to be talking about Molinism that uh, you've written this book about. And uh, I'll just mention the title of the book, An Introduction to Molinism, Scripture, Reason, and All That God Has Ordered. And I I can't quite remember how I came across that now. But when I saw that title, I was very intrigued by it because I've long had an interest in Molinist thought and uh, largely due to the influence of Christian philosophers like William Lane Craig, and Alvin Plantinga. And, And I have to say, I'm not I'm absolutely 100% sure that it's correct, but uh, I've nevertheless found this way of thinking about various problems to be really helpful, you know, in kind of illuminating things. And um, I'm going to say straight away, this is a kind of warning to people listening out there that this is not an easy thing to think about and it's not an easy thing to discuss. So I, you know, as I'm sitting here at this very moment, I've no idea how this conversation is going to go between the two of us. Uh, it's very philosophical. It has attendant technical terms and jargon, so I have to say, Max, I'm delighted to be speaking to you, because you've written this introduction to this subject. So we're going to get into this subject of Molinism in a minute. May I ask you, first of all, Max, if you will, to uh, introduce yourself to us a bit more. You're doing this PhD now in philosophy, which has implications for theology. So how did you get into all this, and um, how has your life led to this point where you're doing a PhD in it?
1: Right. My interest in philosophy stemmed back about halfway through my undergraduate degree. I did my bachelor's and my master's uh, both at Liberty University in Lynchburg, Virginia. I did my first three semesters of my undergraduate as a government major, and um, God's providence led me to switch topics um, through uh, not questioning my faith, but wanting more answers and asking more questions. And so I switched to a religion degree specializing in biblical studies. I tended to be a little bit more philosophical during my undergraduate degree. I, I remember taking a course in Genesis and getting a bad grade on a paper and because it was too philosophical, apparently. Mm. From there, I knew that I wanted to continue on towards philosophy, and it really stemmed from asking a lot of the big questions, typically really existential questions that I, I struggled with, um, personally and uh relationally that's kind of the genesis behind uh where I am now. Have
0: you always been a christian
1: uh no no i uh, mm. I was saved when I was eighteen. It was a childhood dream of mine to join the army. I tried joining or enlisting in the National Guard as a uh, intelligence analyst, but I was mm-hmm. medically disqualified um, due to Crohn's disease, and I had spent a year after uh, my high school graduation working just a part-time job, working with the army and doctors, trying to figure out some way around it, and I just couldn't get around it. And mm-hmm. it was during that year I really heard the gospel for the first time. Someone I, I had a falling out with all my friends. And um, this one person that I was acquainted with invited me to her church and kind of unfolded from there. So, yeah, ever since I was 18 and right now I am 26.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Well, now we're going to be looking at this subject of Molinism, as I say, and it's it's a really convoluted subject. And when I was thinking about this, I was thinking that perhaps the best way of trying to tackle it would be to look at it as a solution or a possible solution to a certain kind of problem in theology. So what I want to do is to kind of, if we could together, to kind of spell out what the problem is and then discuss the kind of solution that Molinism offers. But That, of course, means we we won't get around to discussing what Molinism actually is until later on in the conversation, which will not do. So we need to start with (laughs) with some kind of definition. So just to get us going, could you attempt a kind of brief definition of what Molinism is and what it seeks to deal with?
1: Sure. Molinism was developed in the 1500s by Luis de Molina, and he sought to find the compossibility or the compatibility of divine foreknowledge and human freedom. And so when we look at a lot of the theology that's going on during the 1500s, we see uh, different types of determinism and compatibilism, uh, compatibilism being that free will and determinism aren't exclusive, so they both fit together. And so these questions of divine providence how does that work Um, Molina sought to construct a a possible explanation for how human freedom can be affirmed without compromising god's perfection uh, god's goodness and without having to uh, compromise the anthropology of man either
0: so this is very much a philosophical enterprise. It's not what you might say uh, an exegetical exercise going on here as far as uh, Molina was concerned. I mean, I'm just thinking that some people might bring up that as a criticism of what's going on here and say, well, you know, it's not something, it's it's not an idea that springs out of the scriptures. You can't look at the Bible and read off Molina's thoughts. So should we be paying attention to it if it doesn't sort of spring out of the scriptures?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. And I'd certainly say right away that when you're reading the scriptures and you're exegeting them, you're not going to find a passage and come to the conclusion based off of the root of a certain word or, or the conjugations of certain phrases and say, oh, I found it, there's middle knowledge. Middle knowledge, I wouldn't say it's pure philosophy. And when people make that objection, It personally makes me groan a little bit because we all have philosophical presuppositions that we bring to our text. An example of this is we have to have some type of knowledge of science in in the most broad sense when we exegete the scriptures. For example, if we don't know that water doesn't normally undergo some chemical changes and produce excellent wine, fermented wine, then we're not going to be able to recognize that Jesus performed a miracle. We could just say, okay, well, that was just something that naturally happened. Or that water is less dense than the human body, so Jesus walking on water, how would we recognize miracles? So that's just knowledge of the natural world that we import into the text. And so we can't approach the text of Scripture tabula rasa, so to speak, as as a blank slate and say, teach me everything. Mm. So I would say that Molinism is really philosophical theology. I do believe it's theological in nature, but philosophical theology is an approach to try to explain further things, like how does the concept of resurrection work when we die? Or are we immediately resurrected? And so then we've got the issue of time and you know stuff like that, and so yeah, that's, yeah. That's, so that's so it's, the, sure. Same so. It's, yeah yeah so
0: um you would say then that uh, engaging in this kind of philosophy is not doing an injustice to the biblical text it's it goes sort of hand in hand and in fact is perhaps even implied by certain passages in the bible i mean we'll get we'll get onto this actually in yeah. a little bit but i mean a further thing would be i'm sure some people will say yeah but this kind of philosophical theology you know doesn't paul um speak against that kind of thing let me just bring up a passage here from one corinthians a very well-known passage here in chapter 1 verses 18 to 20 where paul says for the message of the cross seems like foolishness to those who are perishing but to us who are being saved we know it to be the power of god for it's written in the hebrew scriptures quote i will destroy the wisdom of the wise the intelligent of the intelligent i will frustrate where is the wise person where is the teacher of the law where is the philosopher of this age has not god made foolish the wisdom of the world now that seems to imply that christianity and the kind of philosophy that we're about to talk about they just don't mix what do you say to that
1: the way I understand that passage is that our reason and the capacity of our intelligence and capability, there is a ceiling to it, not in the sense that we are unable to reason properly. Yeah. When Paul seems to condemn philosophy, in the in the context of when he's speaking, he's speaking to Stoics and Epicureans who are, you know, the Epicureans were, were very hedonistic, and they took, they were anything pleasurable, they sought after. And so it was a very vain and empty philosophy. It wasn't aimed at truth, necessarily. It wasn't aimed towards finding the truth of God and consistent with God. And I guess the question I would ask to someone who would say that is, you know, why is what you're doing not philosophy, I find it everything that we do to be inseparable from philosophy. Mm. It's so integrated into everything we do and everything that we think. Uh, So that objection, I think, in the end ends up being self-defeating.
0: Yeah, in fact, it just reminded me of – I've already mentioned Alvin Plantinga, but I have a little book by him here. And he says, philosophical reflection, brackets, which is not much different from just thinking hard – and in a way, that's, that's kind of what you said, isn't it? That it, philosophical reflection is just to think hard about things, and you can think hard about the scriptures as you can about anything
1: else. Yeah, a lot of things that we find essential to scriptures and the Christian faith, like the Trinity, we arrive at the Trinity based on theological reflections, putting teachings together. And so, yeah, it's really thinking deeply and thinking hard about the scriptures
0: okay well the last little possible objection here is that um i mean this might come from a kind of denominational perspective and that would be well you know the the person who came up with these ideas in the 16th century was a man as you say called uh, Luis de molina he was a jesuit priest so protestants shouldn't have anything to do with this this is a catholic thing
1: <laughs> <laughs> i find it surprising that i actually hear that objection very often and my response to that would simply be that i don't see how that's not a genetic fallacy what the objector is saying is that because this came from someone who is catholic and let's just for the sake of argument say that i'm reformed and i completely disagree with catholics and and just because that person was wrong therefore any contributions or thoughts that he had on a particular issue therefore that particular issue is wrong you know that doesn't seem to get around that fallacy in my opinion and mm. believe it or not we have a lot of theology that we find in Thomas Aquinas that we would find in Luther that get traced back to uh, a lot of Islamic philosophers. There's a lot of Protestants who are Thomists, and I I know Thomists are Catholic too, so that's something that kind of bridges—there's a bridge there. But, you know, Thomas responds a lot to a lot of Islamic philosophers, like Al-Ghazali, for example, or Averroes, who wasn't necessarily a Christian either. So it doesn't seem like A well placed objection, in my opinion.
0: Yes, I absolutely agree with you. Yes, we can't. The idea that one could, as it were, purify whatever particular faith that you you have by stripping out historical elements that you don't agree with, it just seems to be just a a non starter. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, okay, so we need, as I said before, to establish this problem that modernism addresses before we can uh, get into it. And um, as you said uh, earlier in the interview, this problem is essentially this tension between God's foreknowledge and our. True human freedom. So I'm going to kind of spell this problem out with an example, all right? It's a bit of a silly example, but here we go, all right? Tomorrow evening, I shall decide to do one of two things. I'm going to do one thing or I'm going to do the other. Either I shall freely decide to cut the lawn, because I'm looking out there at the moment, it definitely needs doing, <laughs> or I shall freely decide to clean the drainage channel at the front of our house, which probably needs doing uh, even more. But anyway, I'm going to say they're equal, all right? Um, both need doing. Now, if God has foreknowledge, then he knows now, and he infallibly, he, knows, he doesn't just believe it, he knows that I shall decide to do one or the other tomorrow. He knows what I shall do. If that's the case, then how can I be free to do anything else? Surely I must do exactly what God knows that I will do. Now, I've heard people bring this kind of problem up many, many, many times. That is the problem. Now, Molinism, as far as I understand it, seems to offer a possible solution to that kind of problem So we're going to get into that, but I have to ask you about some ways that are suggested that try to remove the problem in other ways. And one way of doing it is to say, well, look, we're not free. Um, We think that we have libertarian freedom. We're truly free human beings. But maybe there's another way of of looking at it. Maybe – I'm not free in that quite that kind of way. And there's a doctrine called compatibilism that you've already alluded to. Could you tell us a, a bit more about that and why, in your view, that doesn't get rid of the problem?
1: Uh, compatibilism, for some reason, that just doesn't sit well with me, not just in an academic sense, but also in a, in a real spiritual sense. The claim of the compatibilist is to say that, okay, what we do or the freedom that we have Is what we want to do, kind of what Luther, or what will often be cited as Luther's bondage of the will. And so our will is bound to sin. And so not necessarily everything we do is sinful and we're not as evil as we can be, but simply that what we want to do is not necessarily good. And so we wouldn't freely choose God. But my objection to, or my primary objection to the compatibilist comes from the issue of the problem of evil. If God can simply control a world in which everyone is free, so to speak, but yet he can still determine what happens, why is it the case that there is so much evil, so much bad, when God could have created a world without violating anyone's freedom that could be better? All things being equal, if God has the ability to choose between good or bad without you know, the moral balance being changed, why would it not be the case that it would be better? Or he would choose a world with less evil? That would be my objection. Yeah,
0: I, I suppose the problem I have with it is that it seems to talk about freedom, but it kind of isn't freedom. I mean, that's just my layman's way of looking at it. But the compatibilist seems to me to be saying that you know, that God has created human beings and they, they act out of who they are that's freedom in a sense, but who they are is determined by God. And if that's the case, then is that real freedom? Okay, God can therefore know what you're going to do, and that gets rid of the foreknowledge problem. Yeah, of course God can know because he set you up as you are, and you're going to behave in that kind of way. But then freedom seems to vanish like the mist.
1: Yeah, in the end, I think that compatibilism is ultimately just another form of determinism. It's just twisting things around a little bit. And dressing it up to be something else but in the end i think it just comes back down to determinism Mm. i would love to give more kudos to the compatibilist rather than to the hard determinist for trying to make it work but uh, i think that's about as much as i could give them in that concern
0: okay all (laughs) right
1: okay so um maybe we can attack the other
0: side of it and say well you know that maybe god doesn't have foreknowledge anyway so maybe that's how we can get rid of this tension between foreknowledge and human freedom God maybe just doesn't know the future, and I know that there are a number of Christian philosophers who espouse this in various ways. So, I mean, what's your reaction to this way of thinking?
1: Uh, I try to start with God and try to work out everything from an understanding of God. And so I focus primarily on perfect being theology. And so if God is the greatest conceivable being, He's got every great making property, though it could be maximally regulated. And so maybe one of those regulations is omniscience, this objector could say. Even though God is a perfect being, his knowledge is limited, or uh, he doesn't know these things. And So to be fair to this objector, you say that God doesn't know future contingents. They would say, wait, wait, stop, Max. We do believe in perfect being theology. It's just the case that perfect being theology includes the definition of omniscience that God doesn't know future contingents. So I want to be fair to them. But my response is that I think that they define omniscience in an incorrect way. And so the way that I would define omniscience is that if there's any statement that's true or false, if it's true, then God knows and believes that to be true. And so if there is any truth to future contingent statements, like you would cut the grass tomorrow, if there is any truth in such counterfactual claims, then I think that would be a defeater for the open theist position, someone who would deny this type of definition for omniscience.
0: Okay. Um, But as you know, there are some philosophers who will say, yeah, but those kinds of future contingent propositions like, you know, I shall freely choose to mow the lawn tomorrow, or I shall freely choose not to mow the lawn tomorrow. Those are neither true nor false. So they're not something that God can know in principle.
1: Right. So this is where we get into something called ontology or a part of metaphysics that roots the ground of being or or that which is true or false and so we have to look at a theory of truth usually the most popular one is correspondence theory so something is true if and only if it corresponds to reality that would be something that we would almost intuitively perceive that you know the snow is white if and only if the snow is white but the objection that you're making uses a little bit of a different definition of truth and saying that there has to be something that grounds that proposition for it to be true. And this is commonly known as truth-maker theory. And so there has to be something that exists that makes the proposition true. And so because this is a future-tensed proposition, because the future is not now, it cannot have a truth value. It's neither true nor false. And so the example that you gave is exactly what Aristotle considered when he looked at this issue. He asked whether there will be a ship battle tomorrow in the seas. And he says, well, you can't answer it. You can't say yes or no, because it's simply unanswerable. It's kind of like a loaded question. So I think Molina tackles this issue very well himself. And just to give a quote, Uh, of his, he says, concerning the truth of propositions, he says, God does not get his knowledge from things, but knows all things in himself and from himself. Therefore, the existence of things, whether in time or eternity, contributes nothing to God's knowing with certainty what is going to be or not to be. For prior to any existence on the part of the objects, God has within himself The means whereby he knows all things fully and perfectly. And this is why the existence of created things contributes no perfection to the cognition he has of them and does not cause any change in that cognition. And God does not need the existence of those things in his eternity in order to know them with certainty. So, what he's saying here is that the reason why God knows future contingencies isn't because anything else exists besides God, so this isn't threatening to God at all. So, if God chose not to create anything at all, if those propositions could still be considered, you know, we're looking at it as existent beings, but suppose it's the null world, only God exists, God would still know whether or not you would choose to mow your lawn or not if he chose to actualize this world. Now, maybe we might want to unpack that a little bit more. I don't know where you want to go further.
0: Sure. Sure, sure. Yeah, well, yeah, indeed, we're going to get on to the the details of this way of thinking in a bit. And uh, you would agree, I presume, that there are biblical reasons to believe that God has foreknowledge. I mean, I've just uh, picked out a couple of uh, very famous examples here, one from the Old Testament from Isaiah 46, 9 to 10. I'll just read it. Remember the former things those of long ago. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come i say my purpose will stand and i will do all that i please and there's another one from isaiah from chapter 41 uh verses 21 to 24 present your case says the lord set forth your argument says jacob's king tell us uh, you idols what is going to happen tell us what the former things were so that we may consider them and know their final outcome or declare to us the things to come tell us what the future holds so that we may know that you are gods and of course they're addressing the idols the false gods but seeming to hold them up to the standard of uh if, if they're going to be real gods, then they need to be able to know the future. That seems to be the implication behind that. Um, do you think that both those passages heavily imply that God has foreknowledge?
1: Yeah, I, I think it's really important for the Christian to affirm foreknowledge because the way in which false prophets are pointed out or the way to determine whether someone is a false prophet is to see whether or not their prophecies come true. Uh, so if, false gods were to say that tomorrow I'm going to bring judgment and there's going to be fire from the heavens and that doesn't happen, well, that would be a false god. And we find that in Deuteronomy, in the giving of the law, that God says, this is how you're going to test the validity of these things. So yeah, and I I think foreknowledge is also used in another way, not simply in a cognitive sense, but I also think and would agree with uh, some of my reformed friends that foreknowledge doesn't always refer to the cognitive aspect, but a type of for loving someone. So I think there is a witness from perfect being theology that says that we must affirm foreknowledge and I think there is the scriptural aspect as well.
0: Okay. Well we're now gonna we're gonna get into the nitty gritty of it here at long last. And uh, so I'm saying that we're assuming That we do really have free will, true libertarian free will. Okay, we're not totally free in the sense that, you know, we're completely unaffected by our environment or our bodies and our emotions and all that sort of thing. We do have substantial freedom, which means, you know, I could choose to do one thing or I could choose to do otherwise. We're also assuming that God really does know the future. Okay, so that includes knowledge of these future actions done by free human creatures, all right? So we we still have this problem and this tension between the two. We're free, yet God knows the future. And it comes back to that problem I presented at the beginning. Is, well, you know, how can I be free? God knows, so how can I possibly be free? So this is where modernism proposes a solution through a kind of unique analysis of God's knowledge, may I call it that way, into three different categories. Could you explain then what these categories are of these types of god's knowledge you already mentioned middle knowledge how does that fit into this scheme how does this scheme work
1: what molina did is he divided god's knowledge into three logical moments and traditionally there had only been two logical moments so let's start with the traditional first two the first logical moment would be god's natural knowledge god's knowledge of himself all necessary truths. God knows that triangles have three sides and that bachelors are not married. So it would be a priori truths or or necessary truths. It would be everything that could possibly happen. And so then there would be God's free knowledge. That would be the traditional second moment. And God's free knowledge is where he knows what has happened he knows what is happening he knows what will happen and so god's foreknowledge is placed within that umbrella of his free knowledge so we've got possibility and then we've got actuality and so what molina did is he drove a wedge in between these two moments remember they're not temporal moments so it's a logical procession of cognition And this wedge was called, very apropos, middle knowledge. You know, he seemed to be the most creative with this name. And so what middle knowledge did is say, okay, there's another way of looking at the way history unfolds itself. And there's another type of thinking here. And what middle knowledge does is say that God knows all subjunctive counterfactuals. And so what that means, a subjunctive is anything that has the cognate of would or would not. I would have mown the lawn if it weren't raining. Anything that would be a counterfactual. And the counterfactual is something that has a truth value. It can be true or false, but it's Contrary to fact, in the sense that it has not happened yet, or it does not correspond, there's that word again, to the actual world at that moment. So the language that contemporary Molinists use to describe these moments are what are called possible worlds. Possible worlds aren't other universes, um, there aren't other planet Earths, they're simply semantic ways of describing states of affairs mm-hmm. simple descriptive ways of saying how things could be so there's a possible world in which i'm wearing a, a tuxedo right now and i don't happen to be wearing a tuxedo at the <laughs> okay. moment okay uh so you know anything that's logically possible would be a possible world and so a possible world is simply could be just god existing by himself
0: okay can i just uh, jump in there so would you say then a possible world is like a complete set of um statements a complete set of propositions that make a whole and that another possible world would be an, another complete set of statements or propositions. And it, it might be the case that just one thing is different in, in uh, one possible world from another possible world. And so you, you could have a, a, you know, this infinite array of possible worlds spread out before God, as it were, with just, just slightly things, you know, to tweak different in all these different possible, you know. And then God can bring about one of those possible worlds. And that would then correspond to a reality. Have I got that sort of thing Right.
1: Yes, I, I think you're spot on with that understanding. And to put some light into some of the shadowy corners of that issue that you brought up of infinite sets. Suppose that there's an infinite set of all these possible worlds, and then you tweak one little thing, you know, the direction of a hair on your head at this moment, then you've got a completely different world from the current one or, you know, the one different placement or outcome of a quantum particle interaction, then you've got a completely different world. And so, yeah, I, I think your understanding is spot on.
0: Well, what I want to do is, because it's incredibly difficult talking about this sort of thing, you know, in in an interview, and I was expecting that it would be. So what I thought I would do is to try and use something of a graphic that you have in your book and try and describe that in words, you know, because we're, obviously it's a podcast. So what I'm doing is I'm going to imagine God you know, sitting there in a huge armchair <laughs> um, <laughs> before the beginning of the universe. I'm using the word before there in inverted commas because obviously, you know, you've already said we're not talking about time here, we're talking about mm-hmm. a, a logical sequence of things, but just to help us along, you know, there's no there's no universe yet, and God is sitting there and has this massive blackboard in front of him, and on that blackboard are all these little chalk circles, and we're, we're not talking hundreds of short circles, we're talking millions, billions, trillions, and each one of those chalk circles represents a possibility possible world that is you know how a universe could be you know it's a whole entirety and it's from its beginning to its end and everything that's true about that that world that possible world and he has all these stretched out in front of him he could make any of them but when he actually comes to make a world he chooses one and then he has i think as you describe free knowledge of that state of affairs he knows everything that's true about that world that he in fact makes however In the logical sequence here, in between that, he has a blackboard in which, let's say, he's rubbed out certain of those possible worlds. And he has a smaller kind of subset, perhaps a collection of a a few thousand or a few hundred or whatever. And that would be this middle knowledge moment. And he would be rubbing out certain worlds according to what he knows about each of those possible worlds. And that would include knowledge of what you and I and everybody else would do in certain circumstances, what we would do or would not do. And he looks at those and says, well, that, that's not suitable. That one's not suitable. That's not suitable. And it eventually comes to one where he thinks, yes, that's, that's the one I shall make based on all this middle knowledge of what we would or would not do. And he actualizes that world. And in that case, he's actually taking into consideration the free actions that we would do and building those into his decision, as it were, to create a world. Now, I don't know how well I've explained that or whether I've got it right, but that's the best I can do at the moment. How, how do you react to that kind of visual image I've created there?
1: Yeah, I, well, I, should be, I think you could do the rest of the podcast from here on out. That was good. Uh, well, thank you. <laughs>
0: it came from your graphics, by the way.
1: <laughs> yeah, so if we use this imagery, and it's re- it's really difficult for us to imagine – this logical sequence without applying time to it. Mm. So let's continue with the illustration and say that God's sitting in this throne and he's looking at his blackboard of his providential plan. And so there seems to be a trickle down effect. So if we kind of look at these moments laterally, if we've got three rows at the top, we've got, you know, the infinite array of possible worlds And then when we look at the second moment, we know that some worlds aren't there, but some worlds have continued. So let's just use three worlds and say that, okay, possible worlds, one, two, and three. And then we look at feasible worlds, which describe worlds pertaining to middle knowledge. We see only two and three. Well, what happened to one? Well, one would be a world which wouldn't have been feasible in the sense that some truths are eliminated by our free actions or not even causation or action by us, but also counterfactuals that could pertain to the natural world. So it's not necessarily us. For the sake of simplicity, let's just say that this is something that Julian would not have done in this situation. So that world is left out. And so two is very similar to one. And so we look at the third row, God's free knowledge, which is the actual world. But before we get to that world, we have to draw a line in between the middle knowledge and the free knowledge. And then that is God's decree of creation. So God sees this feasible world that he desires and that he wills, that he wants, and he says, This is the world that I'm going to create. And so he decrees creation. And so then we look down at that last dot, and there's only that one dot, that one world there. And that's the actual world and God's free knowledge. God knows this world. His will is prescribed to it, and his will is built into this world. So in this world, uh, we can't falsify God. We can't prove God wrong or try to trick God, so to speak, with our freedom. Because you know, when we try to do that, God said, "No, well, I knew that you would do that, <laughs> right. and so that's not well, going to happen."
0: Yeah. So if I'm uh, I'm going to choose freely tomorrow to mow the lawn, and I think to myself, "Ah, yeah, ha, 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 God knows all that, all that." In His middle knowledge, um, sitting there prior to the creation, or logically prior to the creation, He knew I was going to mow the lawn. Right? Okay. I'm going to go and I'm going to go and paint the front wall instead, and then God would just say. Uh, Well, actually, I knew you were going to do that.
1: (laughs) Yes. Yeah, exactly.
0: (laughs) Right. Okay. So um, would you say then that that this really has got, you know, if this is true, then this actually has got rid of that tension. I I freely do choose to do certain things, but God knows what I'm going to freely do. So that tension is is got rid of.
1: I believe it's certainly a solution to the problem that Molina was trying to address. It's not airtight. I'm not going to be a defender of a perfect theology. I'm certainly willing and open to criticisms, and I think we all have to when it Mm. comes to our, particularly our theology. But at the bare minimum, it's a possible solution to the problems posed, yeah
0: yeah and have said it's really quite mind-bending isn't it to start thinking about this kind of stuff um, but it's it's very intriguing and, and if it there's a possibility for a solution here it's more than intriguing it's possibly very useful in many ways and I want to ask you in a few minutes about the possible ways this could be useful to us so that it sounds like it isn't at all useful it's just up in the air but I think that's not true I think there are many ways in which it could be useful but I'm going to you know you say it's not necessarily watertight I'm going to chuck a couple of things at you to see how you deal with uh, the leaks <laughs> that might be in it <laughs> um, so one here is is uh, the idea that, well, you know, okay, maybe there are actually truths about what I'm going to do tomorrow and you're going to do tomorrow, etc. There really are truths. But how can God have any access to those truths prior to the creation, logically prior to the creation? I mean – I mean, I know some people say, you know, maybe he has some kind of weird vision of what might happen in any world that, you know, he might bring about. Uh, Other people, you know, I think we've already talked about, say that God just knows these truths. But a lot of people do say, yeah, but how can God have access to any of those truths?
1: Um, I think one type of understanding that we could brush away from the beginning is, you know, this vision of the corridors of time, you know. God looks down the corridors of time and saw that we were going to do this, and so he organized the world after that. But, you know, that wouldn't be the case. That doesn't describe what we're talking about because if God's looking down the corridors of time, he's already actualized a world. Mm. And so – you know, we would then get some type of backwards causation. Can God go back and change things after he's already created the world of things that have already come to pass and, and stuff like that? But as far as how does God know this, as far as access to our cognitive faculties, I think there's fairly decent scriptural witness that God knows the innermost thoughts and the inner, innermost of our beings. And so I know it's not the most pleasing or satisfactory answer, but when we look back at Molina's quote as far as how God knows what he knows, well, he knows it because of his perfect being, his self-existence, just in his nature, a a maximally perfect being. And so it would just go back to the issue of how we define omniscience. That's where I would go, and I know a lot of people may see that as running, you know, chasing your own tail, but I would be okay at resting that at the mystery of God's omniscience rather than somewhere else.
0: Yeah, I find that an interesting response, actually. That seems to be something a little like the kind of thing that William Lane Craig talks about, where he says that if you're going to say how can God know one thing, then you might ask a question, well, how can God be these other things as well? Can I just read a little paragraph here? Because I, I found this very helpful. He said, okay. uh, this is from his book, uh, The Only Wise God, quite a small book, actually, but very readable, very, very good book. This is from page 123. Uh, it says that the opponent of foreknowledge uh, might persist in demanding, but how can God have innate knowledge of all future tense statements? The intent of this question, however, is not clear. It cannot mean how did God acquire such knowledge for it is said to be innate, nor do I think the question means how is the concept of innate knowledge possible for the concept does not appear to be incoherent perhaps the question really means how is it the case that god has innate knowledge but then the question appears to be merely an expression of incredulity which requires no answer god simply is that way just as he is also omnipotent necessary morally perfect and so forth the only answer is that god has the essential property of knowing only and all true statements that is part of what it means to be god to be omniscient and to ask how it is is that god is omniscient is like asking how it is that vacuums are empty do you basically agree with that
1: i would and you know after hearing you read that it makes me feel reaffirmed in my, my original answer <laughs>
0: <laughs> splendid um the other one i wanted to bring up was and i think we've kind of touched on this but i'll bring it up formally here is that um middle knowledge is not uh suitable for god to have it sort of compromises his the theological term is aseity, that God should possess all knowledge in himself and of himself. But this middle knowledge seems to require that he gets information from somewhere else in some way, and that isn't uh, worthy of God in some way.
1: Yeah, and this, as we alluded to earlier, is really kind of at the heart of the grounding objection. You know, how what grounds the truth of such statements? Mm. And, yeah, I, I think this is integral to to his very being so i guess Mm. so in a
0: sense he's not getting the information from elsewhere correct He, he he knows it exactly in and of himself it pertains to us but it's not coming from us to him
1: yes yes now we certainly play a role in the historical actualization of the truths and we can certainly be, to an extent, truth makers ourselves. You know, one aspect of libertarian freedom, uh, one small way of understanding agent causation, would be that we ourselves are little unmoved movers, in the sense that, in certain aspects and maybe in certain situations, our decisions aren't determined by prior decisions or prior physical conditions or prior choices or, prior choices or anything like that. Well, how did we choose that? We just did it ourselves. We freely choose that, you know, hence free, not being bounded or determined by anything else. So it'd be in the same sense of God's understanding, except extrapolated on a, on a much grander mm-hmm. scale.
0: Well, I wanted to ask you if you—I did mention this earlier on—that there, there seem to be some scriptures which actually point to God having this kind of knowledge, and there are a couple here that I've—I've I've got. Perhaps the smaller one comes from the New Testament, so I'll read that one. It does seem to imply. I don't know whether you agree with this. Anyway, this is where um, Jesus is speaking, and um, this is in Matthew eleven twenty to twenty-four. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed, because they did not repent. And then he speaks, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes." So that seems to imply that had Jesus performed miracles in a different place, then those people would have responded. This seems to invite here a kind of knowledge on the part of Jesus that corresponds to middle knowledge. Do you agree?
1: Uh, I would actually disagree on that point. Uh I don't think that really points to God's having middle knowledge. And I say that for exegetical reasons. What I think Jesus is using here is rabbinic hyperbole. He's making certain exaggerations in order to demonstrate his point. And so I think his point here to Chorazin and Bethsaida and to Capernaum is to say, you who have seen my miracles and you have heard my teachings, and yet you still don't believe and you won't repent, then you are, you know, the people of sodom and gomorrah Mm -hmm. they would have even listened to me here but i don't think he's speaking literally in that sense that it really would be the case that those would have believed i would stray away from that i know some molinists may try to use that as an example of middle knowledge but i would stray from that because i don't think that's what jesus is saying for exegetical reasons
0: Absolutely. That's a very, very plausible answer to that. Indeed, um, I, I agree with you. What about the one in the Old Testament? This is 1 Samuel 23, 7 to 13. Now, I'll read it if uh, if you think it's going to lead in the right direction. Yes. I'll read this then. Um, Saul was told that David had gone to Keilah, and he said, God has delivered him into my hands, for David has imprisoned himself by entering a town with gates and bars. And Saul called upon all his forces for battle to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. When David learned that Saul was plotting against him, he said to Abiathar, the priest, bring the ephod. David said, Lord God of Israel, your servant has heard definitely that Saul plans to come to Keilah and destroy the town on account of me. Will the citizens of Keilah surrender me to him? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? Lord God of Israel, tell your servant, And the Lord said, he will. Again, David asked, will the citizens of Keilah surrender me and my men to Saul? And the Lord said, they will. So David and his men, about 600 in number, left Keilah and kept moving from place to place. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he did not go there. So there we have a sort of situation that's set up where David is asking certain things and God God is saying, yes, these things will happen but they don't happen. When God says "will," there, what does He mean? Is is this a kind of window onto middle knowledge? Do you think?
1: I think this is one of the better examples we can use, or simple examples at least, for middle knowledge from the Scriptures, as just simply a demonstration that God has counterfactual mm. knowledge. It doesn't use the same semantics that we're using when you know when I would say "X will happen" and "Y will happen." will describes God's free knowledge of what will happen. So the, the you can't change the future, so to speak. And so will describes future tense. And so I don't think the author is sitting here having in mind, well, I need to get my semantics down just right so that they understand God's logical moments. But I think it is demonstrating that God does have perfect knowledge of what would happen in certain circumstances. So if it were the case that David were at this city, then he would be turned over. Um, I think that's just a bare-bone example of omniscience, or that aspect of omniscience, that God knows what would happen, even though it isn't actualized.
0: So in a way, we could read that then, and you think, without doing injustice to the text, would the citizens of Kelas surrender me to him? And um, the Lord says they would, and so David does something different.
1: Yeah, I I think it's a jump starter into the the relationship between middle knowledge and the scriptures. I think it gets the ball rolling, but I I don't think it accomplishes everything. Mm. I want to be charitable and exegetically faithful to the scriptures. So I don't want to load something into it that's really not there. But I, I do think that the perfection of God's knowledge is certainly there. Would you
0: point to any other scriptures that give us a more definite view of this?
1: I think one of the examples would come from Exodus uh, 32, verses 9 through 14, when Moses is coming down from the mountain and God sees the people. I'll just read this briefly to you, and then I'll try to sum it up as best as I can. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, they are an obstinate people. Now then, let me alone that my anger may Burn against them, and that I may destroy them, and I will make of you a great nation. Then Moses entreated the Lord and said, O Lord, why does your anger burn against your people, whom you have brought out from the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak, saying, With evil intent he brought them about to kill them in the mountains and to destroy them? In from the face of the earth. Turn from your burning anger and change your mind about doing harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Your servants to whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. So the Lord changed his mind about harm, which he said he would do to his people. Now, This is an example of one of those pocket verses for the open theists where they would say, aha, well, see, God changed his mind. Well, what can we do with this? And so what I would say is what happens here is that God initially sees the obstinance of the Israelites and seeing that they're worshiping a false god, a golden calf. He says, I'm going to destroy you. You are unfaithful to me. So that prompts a plea of intercession by Moses saying, please don't do that, and he refers God back to his own promise, and God says, okay, I won't do that. Now, this could be completely consistent with the Molinist position in the sense that there's an action and a reaction relationship here. So God acts knowing that if he says this to Moses— that this would then bring about Moses' response. And so by doing that, he still accomplishes his will by fulfilling his promise, because he knew that Moses would respond and say, oh, please don't do this. And so it would still be a reminder of his faithfulness, though the Israelites are still worthy of judgment here. And so I think it's really... I would say a really creative means of providence by God interacting with creation. And this is something that he would know, you know, at that moment of middle knowledge, he would know if, you know, speaking as God, if I say this to Moses, then Moses would do this. And so then the Israelites would know about my anger towards them, yet they would still know about my faithfulness and promises. So I, I don't think we have to compromise on. Uh, an understanding of omniscience and say that, oh, well, God really didn't know. He was just is rather discursive in the way that he's just going along with time and history. And he changed his mind. He was going to do this. And, and the open theist's understanding.
0: Yeah, as you say, so, um, the Molinist position does seem to bring some light to that. Um, if
1: I may interject at mm-hmm. this moment to, hopefully this would encourage some readers, um, and hopefully it doesn't discourage some readers, but <laughs> it, it took me two or three years to really fully understand it to the point that I would say, okay, I am a Molinist. So I, I spent a couple years investigating this and trying to really understand it before I said, okay, I think mm-hmm. this is the best explanation or or the best theological approach on these issues. So if people aren't understanding it for the first time, then that's okay. I would just encourage them to continue to try to study it more and to research it more.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you said that. Thank you very much, because, yeah, I was a similar kind of experience. I was picking up these ideas from different, you know, little paragraphs in my books here and there. And I thought, oh, this is intriguing. This, you know, oh, yeah, there, there might be some real meat here. There's a, a way of understanding things. And and yet there were all sorts of questions sort of hanging off. And then when I went to other books to look into it in more detail, millions of other questions were thrown up. Well, how come this and how come that? And it was, as you said, it was uh, even with me, uh, you know, with with my kind of understanding of the situation, which is not, not from a professional position of course Um, it was a a long process as well so I wanted to ask you lastly about uh, some possible applications of this way of thinking otherwise it all sounds like it's up in the sky and not relevant to anything at all so one is one that William Lane Craig talks about the philosopher William Lane Craig talks about a possible kind of he calls it a rapprochement between arminians and calvinists so one might think that typically calvinists would say that uh, people are predestined by god either to salvation or um, to condemnation Um, an arminian on the other hand I'm more Arminian, I come from Wesleyan tradition, so I would say, no, no, God doesn't predestine people to salvation or to condemnation. I would say that God offers salvation, but he's chosen to make that offer dependent on our free will decisions, to believe or not to believe. So we seem to have two contradictory theologies here. But William Lane Craig thinks that Molinism can help. Do you think it can help with this problem?
1: I do think it can help, and I think the way the Molinists would understand... Uh, the doctrine of salvation, to paint a broad brushstroke first is to say that God knows who would or would not freely respond to his salvific grace should it be offered to them. You know, the word prevenient grace is often thrown around in the sense that uh, it's a grace that comes to us prior to our response So someone could object and say that, okay, well, it seems like you're freely choosing God, but don't the scriptures say that no one seeks God and God seeks out the person? And I would say yes, but a proper understanding, I think, of prevenient grace is that for those whom God chooses the elect, he applies to them this prevenient grace, this antecedent grace that comes first to us. And so this grace acts on us, and then we freely respond to it. Now, what's unique about the Molinist position is that the Molinist would necessarily say that everybody receives the same type of grace. It may be the case that some people receive different measures of grace. Everybody receives common grace, the fact that we're living and breathing. But there's also this prevenient grace, so the elect, it could only be applied to the elect. So God isn't applying salvific grace to someone who's non-elect to a reprobate, because if that salvific grace were applied, well, that person would deny it, or uh, that person would be elect. But to make sure that God's desires and will for his church, for the elect in the molos position, he doesn't give salvific grace to the reprobates because they wouldn't accept it anyways. And so it's not the issue of, well, wasted grace or, you know, grace is just thrown around. No, I I don't think that's the case. I think it's a very particular concept of election and predestination in the sense that God predestines those who would freely respond to the grace if it's offered. And only those Uh, who are saved are the ones that god chooses
0: okay so in this scheme here it is the case that these people are freely choosing and god knows that and applies the grace to those people so it's not that he's deciding who's going to be saved and who's going to be not saved just on on a whim
1: yes Uh, i'll I'll use the language of, of a discursive god's knowledge of the world is going along just as we're progressing through time and that God sees that okay, uh, right now Max is praying to me and he's repenting of his sins and so I'm going to choose him now, okay, and he is now saved. You know, it, it, it's certainly not like that, and mm-hmm. neither is it the case that do I play no role in it? And one of the reasons why I think that there has to be some type of freedom on our part in this respect is particular to the nature of love. Uh, It seems to me that if we really are in a loving relationship with God, it's intrinsic for love to really be bilateral. But it's not necessary that we have to initiate that love relationship with God. God is the initiator of the love relationship. And so when he initiates it, you know he beckons and overcomes our own obstinance and he applies that grace to us so we can then freely respond to that and if it weren't the case that we freely respond to it then it seems like there's really just an eternal infatuation with the church uh, love really only works one way that, that may sound kind of harsh but i i think there has to be some type of volition
0: Can I ask you about another one? This is the problem of evil, and I'm asking you really about the free will defense, but a kind of um, sort of elongated version of the free will defense. This comes from Alvin Plantinga's work. Let me sort of uh, stretch it out here. Suppose somebody says, okay, you people who believe in God, you say that God created human beings. God's perfectly good, and he's all-powerful, etc. He has all these fantastic qualities, but human beings often do really bad things so how come god is perfect he's all-powerful he's made human beings yet human beings do all these bad things so the answer could be the free will defense to say well god makes human beings free we're not robots so when we do things that are wrong well that's our fault it's not god's fault he chooses to make us free and so you might say okay that's so far so good okay but then the comeback could be yeah but then why didn't god make a world in which everyone always does what is right freely there must be, out of all these possible worlds that we've been talking about, there must be a possible world where everybody freely does the right thing. So if God's all-powerful, all-knowing, etc., why hasn't he done that? Now, Plantinga um, follows the kind of Molinist thought on here and, and helps with this kind of problem. Do you agree that his solution here is helpful?
1: I do think it is helpful. Um, there's a lot of different solutions or theodicies for the problem of evil and i don't think there's simply just one solution such as the free will defense i think there is an integration and molding of many of the different solutions and i think they all work together in different ways so what's unique about and interesting about Planiga's solution is that you know he uses this free will defense as you just laid out you know he is a molinist and a lot of people will get him confused with being a calvinist because his theodicy, when it is really unfolded, looks very much like a Calvinist. What's called his O Felix Culpa theodicy, O Happy Sin, in Latin. And that sounds really bad, but you know it used to be almost the mantra, dare I say that word, for God's choosing of the elect in the sense that if Adam had not sinned, then there wouldn't be a cross for God to redeem his people. And so what does with this free will defense is that he applies it in a salvific sense, in the sense that we had just discussed. He uses freedom. He says that all we need is just that flicker of freedom for us to be free in a libertarian sense. So what Felix Culpa does is God chooses a world in which he first chooses to decree the cross, to redeem a people to himself, And then in order to do that, he chooses a world in which Adam would have freely sinned. But notice that God isn't the actualizer, the author of sin in that situation. He chooses a world in which he knew that there would be sin so that he could have redemption. But he's not the one who caused Adam to sin. You know, That's making sure that we get the logical moments right. A lot of times I see people making objections by placing free knowledge prior to middle knowledge and making objections based on mixing those two moments i really need to think of a fancy name for that fallacy instead of always having to explain it so i can just simply refer to it but yeah when it comes to the problem of evil that's planig's solution to it and he really ties it intrinsically to christian doctrine Yeah.
0: okay just can you just hold on a second because there's some strange noises going on downstairs i'll be back in 30 seconds okay Right, it's not burglars. It was my wife, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it's just it didn't sound like it. it she put the radio on, so it was somebody talking, and that sounded a bit odd. Right, okay. So the last one that I wanted to ask you about here is the one that's got a very grand title called the Soteriological Problem of Evil, and uh, this is an argument. It brings into question God's. Uh, omnibenevolence, you know, that he's good to all, or his uh, omnipotence, that he's all-powerful, and I'm going to put the argument something like this. God can't be both all-loving and all-powerful because if he was, he would want everybody to be saved. He'd want everybody to be in his kingdom when it comes in its fullness, and he would also be able to save everyone. But we know that the gospel does not reach everybody, so there are people who Would be saved if only they did hear the gospel, but they don't. Therefore, God either doesn't love those people, so He doesn't love everybody, or He's not actually powerful enough to reach them in some way, or maybe His knowledge just isn't up to snuff in some way. So, what would you say? Do you think that uh, middle knowledge helps us with this?
1: I do think it helps. When we look at the book of Acts, when it says that God has determined uh, the boundaries of the nations and the time and place for everyone to live. I think that's uh, a testimony as to knowing and determining what world he's going to create. So I I don't think it's determinism, but I I think it is consistent with the Molinists in the sense that God will place me at a certain point in history— and at a certain location on Earth, so that I would hear the gospel, and that I would repent of my sins and freely respond to His grace and believe in Jesus. So, what the what the objection is going to say, also known as the cultural contingency objection, we'll hear this a lot from many atheists. who say, "Well, if you were born in Saudi Arabia, you wouldn't be a Christian," and so it's just an happenstantial historical accident. Well. One problem with that objection to begin with is, you know, if I were born in Saudi Arabia, that wouldn't be me because I would have different properties. You know, it's very unique when we use such counterfactuals concerning us, we would have to use them as a referent to the actual world. So, for example, if I say, well, if I had been born in Saudi Arabia, I would probably have different genes. I have blonde hair and blue eyes, so I've got a few recessive genes, but I would probably have different genes with different parents and would have a completely different worldview, history and different memories and, and different body. I would be at a different point in space and time. And so all of my properties would not be identical. And so it wouldn't be me first off. So I think the objection falls flat on its face. But when we use it in understanding of ourselves you know, where we would be, then I think that this Acts testimony is a good testimony for the Molinists in the sense that God puts us at a point in space and time where he's going to accomplish his will and we will freely respond to him.
0: That is a, a very interesting way of looking at it, but it raises all sorts of questions, doesn't it, on, mm-hmm. on the back of that? Um, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking... Okay, you can take the example. Let's not even think about it in the usual geographical way. Let's think of it in a you know slightly off-the-wall geographical way. Say somebody in the middle of India, and along comes a missionary, I don't know, and just happens to get through the gospel. Or maybe there's somebody in um, a culture one wouldn't expect to hear the gospel message who somehow... Intuits the essence of of the gospel in a salvific way. Let's say that's possible. Paul in Romans seems to hint at something along those kinds of lines. Okay, so God mm-hmm. knew that um, such a person that would respond in such a way in those sort of situations. Okay, but there are going to be people who, presumably, from God's perspective, he will know that they would not respond to the gospel or they would not respond to the truths of God as they might intuit from their own being and the world around them. He knows there are certain people who would not respond to any form of the gospel in any possible world whatsoever. Would I be right in in thinking that? There are some people who just would not respond to anything in any possible world.
1: Um, Yeah, that that would be the doctrine of trans-world damnation. But what I would be careful is to not say that it applies to every possible world, because it's certainly logically possible that Everyone be saved. It doesn't seem to be any logical contradiction. Uh-huh. So this trans-world application would seem to apply to feasible worlds in the sense that it's still logically possible that all people be saved. There doesn't seem to be any logical contradiction there. But if it is the case in my soteriological framework that if there is somebody who or some state of affairs in which somebody would freely be saved. God's going to actualize the world in which that person would freely respond. So it wouldn't be the case, at least in this actual world, that somebody, say, in Saudi Arabia or in the jungles of Africa, say, when they die and they face judgment, they don't say to God, well, it's your fault, God. If you just sent a missionary, then I would have believed. Or if you put me at a place in space and time where you know, I lived in America, where the gospel is readily available, then I would have believed. So I'm not at fault here, because you're the one who determined everything. Well, no, you can't make that objection, if this doctrine is true. So I think that Molinism really would help here, as far as making this objection, because I think that's a serious type of objection that we would really have to consider, as far as, and I would agree with you in the sense that there are some people in the world that may have visions or dreams or a special interaction with God where God directly intervenes into that person's life or, or a special revelation. Uh, so I would agree with you on that point, but I, I think it's important that we take that one objection very seriously.
0: Yeah. And just to sort of contextualize this, presumably somebody could say, you know, oh, dear, if only I was not um, born in Britain and heard a false, uh, distorted view of the of the gospel. If, if only God, you'd put me in the middle of Africa somewhere where I've heard a, a relatively <laughs> unknown but faithful preacher, then I would have responded to the message. I mean, it works both ways.
1: Yes. Yeah, I, w- I would agree with you on that. I, th- I think that knife definitely cuts both ways.
0: Well, my very final question here really is a general one about how this way of thinking is doing in the academy. You are, as you say, you're doing a PhD there at Edinburgh University, and uh, you must be picking up all the time the the vibes as to how modernism is being received within academia. Do you think that uh, modernism has a future? Is it in vogue at the moment, or what what kind of status does it have amongst uh, intellectuals these days?
1: Uh, I think it's still uh, a minority position. The debate is primarily between the Calvinists and the Armenians, the Reformed and the Wesleyans, so to speak. Uh, But I do think that the Molinists are starting to gain traction and to gain more prominence, particularly in more philosophical minded people. William Lane Craig has made it very popular, as well as Alvin Plantinga. Ken Keithley at Southeastern uh, wrote the book Salvation and Sovereignty, which I think is an excellent book. Even though it is a small drop in the bucket of theology and church history, I do think it is gaining more prominence, and particularly in academia,
0: yes. You mentioned that one book. Um, Are there any books which you would consider to be a really good introduction to this and of course i'm going to say look there's the introduction and introduction to modalism, scripture reason and all that god has ordered which you've just published but obviously uh, apart from your own work there is there anything that you would say yeah this is the one that uh, if you're finding it's extremely confusing you need to get hold of this book and it's going to answer the, the basic questions and, and get you on the the right road with this
1: i think a good start um that is really relatively unknown even in some of the molinist circles a good one as far as understanding middle knowledge is a book by Kirk McGregor called a Molinist Anabaptist Systematic Theology now personally i i don't agree with everything that he says in his book but what he says concerning understanding middle knowledge and the historical development and contextualization of it and um, Arminius's attempted use at middle knowledge, and so forth. I think that's a really good start, as well as Bill Craig's, as you mentioned earlier, The Only Wise God, where it focuses primarily on that problem of foreknowledge and human freedom. Uh, other books by Thomas Flint, Ken Keithley, as I mentioned earlier, Salvation and Sovereignty, and that would be particular to the Doctrine of Salvation,
0: yeah, excellent. And uh, I've got here, as I read from it earlier, God, Freedom and Evil by Alvin Plantinga. Would you say that's a good introductory one, too?
1: Yes. Well, I don't know if that would be the best for an introduction. If if your primary concern is the problem of evil, and that's something that really, you know, keeps you up at night, so to speak. I think that would be a good start mm-hmm. uh, as far as settling the issue, that issue of the problem of evil and uh, how God providentially orders history. I think that would be a good start there because he does talk about, you know, outline this Molinistic framework. Generally, I wouldn't recommend that one first because it does tend to be a little bit more complicated and doesn't lay out as clearly as some of these other texts
0: do. Okay, so that might be second base. And uh, you've got a website in which you have uh, a lot of philosophical materials, of course. Could you get out your website and tell people what they might find there?
1: Yes, it's sententius.org. And the way that you spell that... S E N T E N T I A S Sententius.org comes from the Latin where we get, you know, the structure of thought, hence sentences and sentential outlines, so to speak. So, uh
0: huh. Well, I'll link to that in the show notes, of course. And can people. You know, if they if they want to find out more from you one to one, is it possible for people to ask questions of you there through the website in some way?
1: Yes, I do have a Q and A section. If you click on the uh, Q and A tab, I've got a couple dozen questions that readers have submitted, ranging from issues concerning Molinism and philosophy of science and other areas that I work in. I give a means of contacting me uh, via email, and then send me a question, and I will do my best to answer it. And if I don't have an answer, then I would (laughs) simply do my best and put that online give give my answer and, and do my best great
0: um, well as, as I say I will make that uh, available in the show notes of ways that people can get in touch with you and uh, that's great to hear that uh, you, you're keen to have that interaction with people because I quite suspect that uh, having listened to this interview people will have a few questions they might want to ask and I'm, I'm hoping they'll mostly ask you ask you rather, <laughs> rather than me anyway thanks uh, Max it's been wonderful to have you on it, it really is a, as I said a number of times during the interview a mind bending kind of subject but um, from you know my experience of having read things through over the years, I do find that it is actually quite fruitful in at least opening the door to some possible solutions to some very deep theological problems which can get you down when you start thinking you know is this really contradictory and then you find something like this modelist thought which as i say kind of opens uh kind of chink of light and you think well okay maybe we don't have all the answers but this does seem to be showing a way in which maybe it's leading towards a solution and okay i haven't got the infinite mind of god so maybe i'll never get there but maybe it's sort of pointing in the direction helping us that way. So uh, thank you ever so much for spending all this time going through all the detail of this. And, uh, you know, I think that if people sort of pick up some of the gist of where this thought goes, I think that will have been a success in itself. And maybe uh, people will follow up by reading a few articles here and there, going to your website, and as I say, asking questions of you. So thanks ever so much, for Max, for coming on. It's been great to speak to you.
1: Uh, you're welcome, man. Uh, thank you very much for hosting me.